You're listening to audio from The Village Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at thevillagechurch.net. Good morning, church. My name is John Lowe. My wife and I serve as premarital mentors here, and I also co-lead a home group. The passage this morning is taken from 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the light or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, for, and for a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, John. Good morning. My name is Mason King. I'm one of the elders here. We'll be in that passage all day, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you join me there. I can tell you, I grew up in Fort Worth. That's, uh, that's my hometown. And I remember before they turned it into a place for toddlers that there was this museum of science and history that had some incredible exhibits. And there was a diorama of cavemen that I remember clear as day that I saw as a small child. And you would walk in and it's this life-size, maybe slightly smaller than life-size diorama that you could walk around. And there's these cavemen who are performing a surgery called tree panning. Anybody ever heard of that? So it was a, uh, it was a surgery where in uh, ancient times they would cut a hole in the top of your skull about two and a half to five centimeters wide so that they could let the spirits out of you and let the disease out of you. And I remember even as a kid thinking, like, two Advil would be easier. <laughs> like, you could, you could handle that. But ancient medicine treated disease and illness through witch doctors and healers who used herbs, dances, and spells to ward off unseen realities and restore health. Eastern medicine used practical, magical practices to dispel demons who caused coughs, seizures, fevers, and tuberculosis. The Greco-Roman era brought a view of hygiene into the mix, focusing on external conditions. That's why they had spas and tried to really pursue health externally. And then parts of culture in the early Middle Ages forbid surgery. You couldn't cut on the body. So medicine became an art form in the middle, uh, from the Middle East to Europe. Now we've gone from cavemen to the Enlightenment. And in the Enlightenment, they thought, let's leave behind old beliefs about unseen forces and supernatural influences. And instead, this period embraced new ideas because it was an age of discovery. 
And so the 17th, 18th century brought about the rise of science and the study of anatomy. And the priority was to find a simple way to heal the sick. And I am thankful for modern medicine. The 19th century brought germ theory, pasteurization, and vaccines. The 20th century focused on preventative medicine. How do we get in front of what makes us sick? So you have vitamins and supplements and hormone therapy therapy and immunization. And it's the 21st century, and man, medicine can do incredible things. Both my parents are cancer survivors, and I am grateful for modern science and medicine. Uh, if, they, if you were actually to show modern science to the tree painting cavemen, they might think you're the witch doctor because it made sense to them in their world. And now we're not just trying to find simple ways to heal sickness, we're actually trying to escape old age and optimize our very bodies. So we track every data point that we can. You can actually get supplements coded for your genetics. So your individual imbalances can be brought up to superhuman strength. These things are available to us. We just want control over ourselves and our days a little more. So if you have a headache, we don't drill a hole in your head. We don't do that. But also our first thought is not to ask a priest for prayer or God for healing. It is to ask for two Advil. See, medicine is a grace, and I don't want to go back to that diorama, but do you notice that the unseen and supernatural have been erased from our instincts? Like the equations are scientific and rational. So are you sensitive or anxious? Too much coffee, just over-caffeinated. Are you sad or depressed? Must be just not enough vitamin D. Are you angry or irritable? I'm so sorry. That's just the burden of being right in a land of idiots. (laughs) But what if these things, what if these things have supernatural and natural influences? What if they have supernatural and natural influences? So do you have a friend who thinks the devil is behind everything wrong that happens? Some of you are very loud on that one. Like, are they constantly saying everything is spiritual warfare? So what about the friend that points everything back to God's action in their life or yours? But, but isn't there, friends, like, if, you, if you're honest with me, isn't there this enlightened, rationally minded, disenchanted part of you that thinks, come on, man. Like, yeah, those things are real, but life is just life, Right? We don't expect our world to be like the world of the Bible. But I'll tell you that when suffering comes, when cancer appears, and there's no explanation or treatment doesn't work, that disenchanted part of you gets religion real quick. And we feel entitled to blame or doubt God even as we ignore Him in daily life. So our world has moved from divine action being everywhere, like one author says, like thick confetti all over the ground after a parade, to being a nice thought on a hard day. We don't see God at work everywhere. We have fallen asleep to divine presence and action. We have fallen asleep to divine presence and action, and we need to become awake and alive to reality. 
Now, medicine is just an example, just an example to kind of get us into this space because we have moved over time from a God-soaked, enchanted, meaning-drenched, divine action-laden existence to a feelings-based, consumer-driven, progress-obsessed, meaning-deficient reality which leaves us without a narrative to guide our way of being in this world. We have fought everyone and everything for freedom, only to carry within us this weight of a hunger for God that our culture doesn't know what to do with. We live for today because you only live once, right? In our cultural moment, the Christian faith has been emptied of historical significance and eternal perspective. God's plan for the community of saints, for us, has become about my well-being, about your well-being in yourself. The kindness of God is made suspect, and you and I often barter for love with morality. We think God, God will give us what we want if we just act right enough. Our eyes are on our kids, on our health, on our retirement, and God is working on a longer timeline. So my encouragement this morning is for us to look at the reality of God's time. A scholar named Nigel Scotland says this, the starting point of many has become my needs, my self-interest, and my satisfaction. Much of contemporary evangelism tells people Jesus will make them happy and fulfilled. People, therefore, look for a church that meets their needs, and they go to worship for what they can get out of it. Indeed, the comment, I didn't get much out of that service, is often passed without even a thought that there might have to be a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving or a concerted effort to worship God with all of one's heart, mind, soul, and strength. Thus, for many churchgoers, Christianity has become primarily a lifestyle, an ethos, a culture or a club, rather than a faith or a relationship with the Lord who demands total commitment on the part of his followers and who wants them to live in community relationships with others. We have lost sight of God's time because we, you and I, functionally live like the clockmaker has left his work and he's not coming back. Paul writes to the saints in Thessalonica who are concerned about the time. They think that God is right there with his creation. And they're concerned about the time because they believe Christ is returning and they want to be ready. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. He says, you don't need reminding, friends. You know Christ is returning. And when he does, it will be a day of reckoning for those outside of Christ and a day of restoration for those inside of Christ. And so you're living in light of this day because you don't want to be caught napping. You're paying attention. And what does it say about when he comes? It'll be like a thief in the night. He's not going to announce it and give you a week to get ready. Be like a thief in the night. See, in the training program, we talk about God's reality and his view of time. And by that, I mean if you take the New Testament and you draw a straight line through the New Testament from eternity past, through the Bible, all the way to eternity future, you have the New Testament, much of history, 
us. Christ's return that we wait for. You seen that map that we teach your, ch- your kids? That the church is waiting, and we are waiting for Christ's return. We are not at the end of time. You find us right now in God's world waiting on Christ's return to fulfill his reign as he promised. But I'll tell you, this view of time is problematic when our world doesn't make room for God or feel a need for him. Rationalism, a way of thinking about the world, only trusts what we decide is sensible. Materialism only trusts what it can see and hold. Individualism says truth is what works best for me. And scientism tells me truth must be replicable and explainable. I have to be able to prove it to believe it. And so the move from living as a creature to seeking creative control over my life means mystery is no longer something to marvel at. Mystery is no longer something to marvel at, but something to solve and move on. We do this with everything, including our faith, If we're not in control of a circumstance in life, we wrestle with accepting it. How about you? Something outside of your control and you think, I don't want this. You're all good. Okay. Something outside of your control and you think, I don't want this. Because we believe that we have a right to control our fate. We think it's up to us. But friend, who told you that? Scripture didn't. Scripture does not tell us that we have control over our fate. It sounds more like freedom rooted in my will than in God's design. One scholar proposes four questions when we want to diagnose our circumstances. He says this, who are we? Where are we? What is wrong? What is the solution? And the Bible, the Bible tells us that we are made by God and for God. That sin has marred all of God's creation, fracturing the relationship between God and man, and that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has brought us into the family of God at great cost to himself. And so those who trust in Christ now live in light of the reality that Christ will one day return and make all things new. But when you put it like this, there's an open-ended nature to that. And so you have to ask the fifth question, what time is it? You have to ask what time it is. And so Paul writes that the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And the Lord himself says in Matthew, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Christ himself says, again, in Revelation chapter 3, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know of what hour I will come against you. So if we're honest, like he's kind of been a long time in coming, right? Like Luther thought that he was in the last days, and that was 500 years ago, so... How are we doing holding out hope? Like many of us, we're just not sure. Like we think it's a good idea that he's coming, but it doesn't enter into our daily life that Christ will return. So dear cynicism, 
skepticism and doubt. I want you to hear the word of the Lord. The scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, what is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. We think he's late in coming, but a thousand years are a day to the Lord. Then James says, what is your life? What is your life for you or a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes? When we forget God's timeline, we lose ourselves. We lose ourselves. So I just ask you this morning, are you living with Christ's return in mind? Or are you banking that you'll have time to get ready when he comes? Like how many of you doubt he's coming? If you were to ask yourself and be honest, how many of you doubt that he's coming or that he's coming in your lifetime? I think if you have children, many of us, yeah, many of us want him to come in our children's lifetime. We doubt that he'll come in ours. Holding out faith hope, and love in a disenchanted world is hard. It's hard. So verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So I think every woman in here who has given birth will testify that when labor pains begin, there is an unavoidable and inescapable reality ahead. I have not done this. You can testify to this. Right? There is no preparing last minute. Once labor starts, you're in it. And I'll tell you this is a reminder that Paul does not include the scrubs, needles, or epidurals. That's early 20th century. Okay? So when he says labor pains, he means the full deal. Because people, he uses this word picture this way, because people blinded by the world don't feel the need for God. People blinded by the world don't feel the need for God. And so in their day, they're thinking about happy hour. They're thinking about vacation. They're thinking about retirement. And they're looking to have a life of comfort or pleasure or to escape pain. And so they say, it's okay, don't be uptight. There's peace. Do what your heart tells you is right because you can trust yourself to know what's best for you. There is no urgency in this view except to silence the echoes of God's good design 
for your life. And once labor begins, I mean, I'm not, I, I think this is true, but some of you did not testify like it was, but once labor begins, the process and pain are inescapable and inevitable. Paul says we must seek Christ now because we can't then. We will have judged ourselves at his coming by falling asleep to the time, embracing false peace, and letting comfort be to us a slow death. Verse 4, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You're not in darkness, saints. That day's not going to surprise you. You are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. He's saying, some are going to be surprised, but surely that's not you because you're in Christ. He reminds them who they are and where they belong. You are in Christ. And so he encourages these saints. They're not of the darkness, of the light. They are. We are children of the day. We're in Christ. And therefore, Christ's coming is not a surprise because our lives are marked by light and we're living with the end in mind. You live with the end in mind. So the question, I think, if you're asking this is, how do I, how do I become a child of the light? How do I know that's me? Well, the first is that we trust Christ and join God's family. And then we work out what God has put in us by renewing our minds in God's truth. So you trust Christ as Lord and Savior, and then you continually submit all of life. You continually submit all of life to God's good design for identity, belonging, and purpose. You do it again and again and again. And we learn about and delight in God so much that His truth changes us from the inside out. You learn about and delight in God so much that His Word and His truth and His Spirit changes you from the inside out. And Paul tells us this is our spiritual act of worship to join in. It's Romans 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God. What is the will of God? What is good, acceptable, and perfect? And many of you have heard that, but I, I, I'm not sure that we all catch what Christ actually prays for us. In John 17, when he says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. He's saying, mature them in holiness in your truth. Your word is truth. So if we are not growing in our delight, in our understanding, in our dependence upon the God of the Bible, then we are in danger of falling asleep to the times. Because you and I, if we're not delighting in God, we will trust our intuition our experience, and our own thoughts to tell us what is best. So recently, a couple weeks ago, I showed you some stats. Remember when I put the stats on the screen about how great evangelicals are about knowing our own doctrine? Just everybody blew it out of the water. And you might think, man, dummies. Uh, but I don't want us to think that that's not also us, right? It's not necessarily those out there. Like, there are times that we struggle how many times have you been in a room where someone asks a theological question and you don't want to raise your hand? All the time. 
all the time. No one wants to get God wrong, right? You don't want to get God wrong? How freeing it is to humility, like in humility go, we're all beginners. Anything we know about God, he's given us, so why don't we try and learn more? Gosh, fear of looking stupid keeps us from learning more about God. One of my joys each week is to have conversations with some of you in class as we walk through the Bible and we apply it to life. I know for myself and for my team, like it's a joy to sit with those who think, I'm not a good learner. I've convinced myself I can't read, I can't study. That's for somebody else, that's not me. To sit with you and open up the Bible and pray that the Holy Spirit would let you see Jesus as he is. He's beautiful and good, and that it would draw you forward, that your life would be made new. So I just ask you this, what keeps you? What keeps you from knowing God more and delighting in Him? What keeps you from knowing God more and delighting in Him? Okay, so the thing that keeps you, is it delivering what it promises? Is it delivering what it promises? Are you finding the life you're looking for in that thing? You see, when we answer the five questions of who are we, where are we, what is wrong, what is the solution, what time it is, then we know how to live in light of the coming ultimate reality. And N.T. Wright says this. He says, Christian living in the present consists of anticipating this ultimate reality through the spirit-led, habit-forming, truly human practice of faith, hope, and love, sustaining Christians in their calling to worship and reflect his glory into the world. So knowing about God, delighting in him, and knowing the time encourages us to become the kind of person ready for the day of the Lord and beyond because he is coming. So a question we also are asking is then how should we live, right? How should we live? It's like Paul knew you were asking, verse six. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. He says, keep awake, and be sober, and you're thinking, no alcohol, and I stay up all night. (laughs) It's not what he's saying, right? It's not what he's saying. Earlier in these series, we talked about how when the darkness entertains us, it numbs us to reality. When you let darkness get your laughter, you become numb to the danger that it is. And Paul agrees. He says, pay attention to how you live because how you live affects how you think, how you feel, how you engage in God's world. And so if you live in the light as a child of God, the things people do in the dark will lose their pull. So you uh, you remember what some caring adult told you in high school? Nothing good happens after midnight. There are things we do in the dark. Hey, hey. There are things we do in the dark and have done in the dark because if they were done in the light of day, we'd come to our senses through conviction, shame, embarrassment, or discovery. 
we would know why the fear of the Lord is clean, giving light to the eyes. There are things you do in the dark because you can hide from others, and God help us, we can even hide from ourselves because we don't have to face ourselves in the dark. But nothing is unseen by God. How do you keep awake and be sober? What does the text say? It says, we arm ourselves and we encourage one another. Verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. He's saying, if you are a child of God, you belong to the day. You belong to the day, not to the darkness. You have a future in God's kingdom. And when the day of the Lord comes, you aren't destined for wrath. You don't have to fear because you are in Christ. And a world with no need for God can only hope. A world with no need for God can only hope in human progress. But Christ died for us so that whether we die before he comes, which is what he's saying here about falling asleep in the Lord, whether we die before he comes or we're awake and alive when he gets here, we have hope that is sure and steady and certain that we are in Christ. And so our hope is in Jesus. The world's hope is in human progress because our culture is looking for spiritual meaning everywhere but Christ. Because Christ does not, need, does not meet the promise of self-sufficiency, independence, and prosperity. And if I tell you about the love of God for you, you might think, discipled by this age, you might think, he just seems too good to be true. Because we are suspect of the good. We don't trust it. The worldly virtues of 2023 are cynicism, skepticism, and doubt. We've talked about these often. They influence our thoughts and the things we tell ourselves more than we ever can realize. They invade our thoughts and they pull the blinds on the light, inviting darkness. So what are the virtues of light that lead to life? Faith, hope, and love. These three hold truth with a firm grip and a whole heart. So how do we arm ourselves? I said it once, say it again. We trust Christ as our Savior. We put our hope in Him. We continually surrender our lives to God's good design for identity, belonging, and purpose. And then three, we pay attention to our hearts and to each other. We pay attention to our hearts and to each other, helping each other love and live rightly to the end. You and I are prone to forget the time and season. We are prone to fall asleep in comfort. We are prone to numb ourselves with darkness. It's just easy. And so in that, we are prone to be shaped by the world. And so what is a primary weapon that you and I are given to fight the drift away from the light? The Holy Spirit in you, in me. 
What's the primary weapon we're given to fight the drift away from the light? Each other. The Spirit of God in and among us. It's verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. You might think that's like a nice tag on at the end of the thing. He's like summarizing up. He's like, so therefore, encourage each other. I know you're doing already. It's fine. Keep going. <laughs> think about the rest of the text across the New Testament. You see it time and again. Here's just a few. Romans 15, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. First Thessalonians 4, just a chapter ahead. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Here's one you know well, Hebrews 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider, let us consider, let us thoughtfully think about someone else about how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Worldly endurance is about me. Godly endurance is about us. It's about us. A pastor that I know and love says, few of us are like lacking for encouragement. Few of us, I mean, sorry, few of us have too much encouragement. Like, how about you? How would you say, like, I could use some encouragement? It'd be good. It'd be awesome if someone would think about me. But how often are you the one just looking for others to think about you instead of you thoughtfully looking to give freely and encourage others and bless them? Cynicism, skepticism, doubt, they turn us inwards. And faith, hope, and love help us look out. Bonhoeffer, a German theologian and a martyr in World War II, wrote this. He said, Therefore, Christians need other Christians who speak God's word to them. They need them again and again when they become uncertain and disheartened because, living by their own resources, they cannot help themselves without cheating themselves out of the truth. You ever feel that? They need other Christians as bearers and proclaimers of the divine word of salvation. They need them solely for the sake of Jesus Christ. The Christ in one's own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of another Christian. The heart in one's heart, the heart in one's heart is uncertain. The word is sure. You see, a private Christian character like your private Christian character that only God knows about is an invention of the modern age. It is an individualized, consumeristic view of God that turns us inward, reinforcing and refaming, walking with Christ as an individual project instead of a community one. And there is no, there is no rugged, individualistic Christianity in the New Testament. It doesn't exist. But when you look, what you see are calls for mutual honor, interdependence, sacrifice, trust, and love. But this is hard, right? Because people. Yeah, it's hard because people. Like how many of you have been hurt by those who should have cared for you? How many of you have hidden parts of yourself to get by? Just like, I'm too much here. That hurt when I shared that. I'm just going to shut that down. How many of you are afraid to be known by God 
or by others because of what you think is going to happen. Like you just hide. How long? Like how long are you going to try and do it by yourself? How long? Prayer team and elders, if you want to come up now, this is a good time. We're nearing our time to pray together. There's about 1,300 people in this room, and I know that many feel lonelier than you'd ever let on. Like you found a parking spot. You're at the nine, so you found a parking spot. And you got in here, and maybe you're, you might know a few people, but you don't know everyone, and that might feel like life, that you're lonelier than you would ever let on. You might have a ton of friends and feel alone in every room you walk into. And you feel the weight of life and you're not sure where to go because you have to keep up appearances, right? Like it baffles me that we do this. Can we just be honest with each other? It baffles me as Christians that we do this, that we come to Christ acknowledging that we are a mess and we have needs. Amen, right? Yeah. And then after a while, when you're a Christian, you think, I can't have needs anymore because they might think that I'm needy. I can't be a mess anymore because they, not, they might think I'm not perfect. Surprise. We still have too high a view of ourselves and other people. We worry about other people thinking we're not perfect and it keeps us from Jesus. Everyone here has needs. Everyone here is imperfect. I have this thing that I tell myself often when I feel like, when I feel like I'm pretty big in my britches, I say, Mason, you are ordinary, imperfect, and loved. That's who you are as a human. You don't need to be anything else. You're ordinary, imperfect, and loved. And I'll tell you, friends, you don't have to be lonely. Christ provides a family and a home for you. And is the community of faith, the body of Christ that we belong to and need to learn to function within, which means we need to bring our whole selves into the light. And we have to trust others to receive us as human, ordinary, imperfect, and loved. Last week, I was at lunch with a friend. And uh, I'll tell you this, I'm just tired of trying to be superhuman, Like that Mason that wants to be superhuman needs to grow in faith, hope, and love because whenever he shows up, he overfunctions. He finds his worth in taking on more responsibility and he treats himself mercilessly because of a deep-seated shame that he's not really loved. And the problem is that Mason actually gets rewarded with praise because he's a hard worker. And it just doesn't satisfy And so I was sitting at lunch with a friend last week and I described this part of me, this thing that now I've I've felt my entire life and I've I've now been able to give name to. And my brother gently shined light on the shame I was listening to. And he reminded me that I belong to the day, to the light, and that there is a truer voice that calls me beloved despite what I tell myself. My friend ministered to me and fought for me with faith, hope, and love. And he reminded me of what I really want, to walk in the light, 
to live with humility and prayerfulness, to bring my whole heart into life with others, which is risky and beautiful. I mean, gosh, this reality is hard. It's easier to keep our distance than to be loved as a whole person. But the life and your love you're looking for is what God offers you in Christ and actually within the body of Christ when she acts rightly, when she serves and builds one another up in love. And this reality helps us remember to live with the end in mind as we encourage each other. So our first step this morning is actually to look another Christian in the eye and say it out loud. The thing that's haunting you, hurting you, keeping you from life with God, to say it out loud, to ask another to help you by being present with you, praying for you, and ministering God's grace to you. Because, friend, we believe in a God who hears and answers prayer. He hears and answers prayer. So I'll say this. If you're lonely, you can come to Jesus. If you've numbed yourself to God's reality, if you've embraced cynicism, skepticism, or doubt, if it's getting harder to hold out faith, hope, and love, if you've given yourself to the darkness and you want to come home, if you're tired of being superhuman and you want to be free, if you're hiding parts of yourself because you're scared of being judged, left, or less than, I just want you to come on. Like, come now. You can get up now. And you can come pray. You don't have to be shy. You don't have to be nervous. This is what we do in the family of God. And we're actually just going to take some time to do it right now. That we minister to each other and we encourage each other to stay awake and in the light. So we're not turning down the lights. We're not telling people to close their eyes. If you want to pray, no one is surprised you need prayer. We all need prayer. How much do you want to admit it? And so now we just have time to do work as the body of Christ together.